Gresham College presents the Gresham Special Lecture 2017, A World Without News, by Alan Rusbridger. Uh, well, thank you, and uh, thank you, Richard, and thank you um, for all coming out on such a hot and sweaty day. Um, that's, that's a picture of, um, I'm hoping everybody can sort of see these slides. Um, yeah. Um, that, that's a picture of, it could be any American newsroom. Uh, they, that is a, you can see, and as, as people leave are made redundant, uh, uh, decide to do other careers, their faces get blacked out, and it's a story of familiar decay in, in many newsrooms, uh, which leads to this question that I'm asking today, that it's been apparent for a number of years and is becoming more apparent that the economics of news may not add up, may not. Uh, and if they don't, there's a prospect of communities, maybe even countries, having to survive without uh, the thing that's been there for hundreds of years, a, 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 a group of people working in institutions whose job it was to say this is true and that's not true. Uh, and it's all happening Story actually, I was looking there, and there, there is Gutenberg at the, the top window up there, and um, you know his role, and, and, that, and that was the last great transformation, I think, in, in communications, and I think this is a greater transformation in, in communications. But nevertheless, the thing that Gutenberg started uh, progressed to something like that, and, and the young members of the audience may not know that that is called a printing press. Uh, uh, and there was this remarkable period of 100, 150, 200 years, depending on your type of printing press, uh, in which that was the way that news was transmitted. And a lot of the story that I'm telling today is about technology um, and uh, the, the changes in technology. Uh, and a printing press was an expensive thing to buy. Not many people had printing presses. Uh, but if you had a printing press, that placed the journalist in a rather remarkable position. We were, if you like, a bit up on a platform as I am this evening, um, because we had the printing press and you didn't. Uh, and that meant that we could tell you stuff that you didn't know, that it was very difficult for you to find out stuff if you didn't have a printing press. And so therefore you paid us in order to tell you stuff. That was very nice if you were a journalist. Uh, and even better, that advertisers, if they wanted to get to you, would pay us all over again in order to get to you. So we got paid twice to tell you stuff that you didn't know. And that led to a set of assumptions about journalism uh, in which journalists not only believed that was the natural order of things, um, but they also believed that that gave them a kind of authority or expertise because they had this knowledge and you didn't. Uh, and <clears throat> it was really nice if you were a journalist. It was really nice. Uh, and there was not much that we, we, I mean, to say that we weren't interested in you is not true, not completely true. Um, but we kind of sort of lobbed the newspaper over the wall at you. Uh, we had no idea really which bits you read and which bits you didn't read. If you disagreed with us, you could write us a letter, and guess who got to decide whether to print the letter? It was me. Uh, so the journalist was in almost complete control of this process, and you can see why journalists 
really love that, and all journalists over a certain age would like to get back to that. Um, but the, the economics don't add up because a lot of you now don't feel the need to pay us for the stuff, uh, and the advertisers have worked out they can get to you without coming via us. So your two sources of revenue uh, are drying up very rapidly. So I'm, I'm trying to write a book about this period at the moment, and I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, about these things um, and trying to describe this period in which I began editing in 1995, and we sort of, you know, took it, took it on from Gutenberg a bit. <laughs> but nevertheless, we were still dealing in words, and it was a world in which you went in in the morning and you built up to one deadline at the end of the day. Um, we, were, we printed in black and white for whatever that matters. It, it, you know, the, it, it was still a radical thing even to print a color picture in, in, in the paper. Um, we were the ninth biggest paper in the UK. So the, the Guardian, I think, has always been a, a paper that's been greatly respected, but, but um, uh, perhaps n not um, did. Well, it, it never sold a huge number of copies. Uh, and uh, almost nobody overseas read the Guardian. Um, about, I think about 300 copies went, went abroad at the time that I was editor. I mean, there were some deals in which bulk copies went, but essentially it, it was a UK paper. And by the time I left, uh, we were publishing uh, on print, on desktop, on tablets, this preposterous thing that we could never have imagined that people would read papers on a thing about that size. That, that seemed impossible to imagine even about 10 years ago. Uh, we were using audio, we were using video, we were using graphics, uh, and we had become the biggest serious English language newspaper website in the world. We'd overtaken the New York Times. Um, and this involved working round the clock. Um, this, the idea that you would have one deadline at the end of the day was preposterous because you lot had become accustomed to wanting to know the news immediately. You didn't want it tomorrow morning at breakfast. Uh, and if we didn't give it to you, you'd go somewhere else and that would impact on the business model because we were still hoping to get the advertisers to come to us to talk to you. But the biggest thing that happened was social media. Uh, and that took some time to really get our heads around because it, it, it seemed at the time there couldn't be anything bigger than moving from paper to the internet. That, that seemed like a huge thing. And the moment we had done that, and my head of digital came into the room and said, there's this thing called Web 2.0, and that's bigger than Web 1.0. Uh, it was difficult to take that seriously, but she was, of course, completely right, because what Web 2.0 meant was that you lot could talk to each other. And that was never in our game plan. Um, uh, and in fact, we found it a bit offensive. Uh, because you could talk to each other, you could challenge what we did. You didn't have to write me a letter. You could just go and denounce us elsewhere. You could critique us. But you could all become publishers. Your companies, your workplaces, your places of, of um, culture, your places of entertainment, of faith, your places of, of learning all became media companies. You all produced media uh, and every single individual was able to communicate essentially with every other individual. And that 
is a huge thing that puts Gutenberg in, into the shade, and it is something we still don't understand. We cannot, because it's invisible. A newspaper is a visible thing. You can see somebody reading it, uh, and it, it's all there and transparent. If, if you're talking on WhatsApp, uh, or you're publishing to a, a group of friends on, on Facebook, uh, then what the, 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 these billions of pieces of communication each day are invisible. Uh, and I was trying to draw a timeline there for, for, for my book of trying to work out what we were doing at various times. And up the top, you mentioned that we changed format, and the Guardian is just talking about changing format again. And we were doing that at the time, at the very time when Facebook was being created. Um, and you now think, well, this was, this was shuffling the chairs. And there was one weekend in about 2006 when the, news, the British newspaper industry gave away 20 million DVDs in one weekend. Do you remember that period when you couldn't buy a newspaper without DVDs falling out of it? Uh, and that was in an industry that was in denial. It was desperately trying to shore up print instead of working out what Facebook and Google and Twitter meant for us. Um, and this business now is very, very troubled. And I just want to share with you, a, there was a, a recent blog by a very, very good press commentator called Jay Rosen, uh, who uh, works at, at uh, NYU in New York. Uh, and he, he wrote a recent blog after Trump was elected called Winter is Coming. And he just summarized the reasons why he felt uh, there was now a kind of perfect storm of factors that had come together to make it a really dangerous time for the press. Um, and the, the, we've done the economic one already. Um, so you get a, a, a severe economic crisis in, in most newspaper companies. Second one was a low trust environment for most institutions and their leaders, the same ones who are regularly featured in the news. So the, the very people we're writing about, there's been this collapse of trust in everything. Uh, and so why would be people, if we, we had an assumption that you might want to read about these people, uh, but now if you've got a world where especially younger people actually don't trust them and wouldn't feel inclined to read about them, that, that's really bad news. Um, that one there is a broken and outdated model in political journalism which tries to connect the public to the inside or access reporting about a class whose leg legitimacy is itself eroding. I should remember not to do bright colors in, in, in slides again. So that's, that's this thing of the insider reporting in which you do all the inside Beltway, inside Westminster reporting uh, and lose touch with what's going on at grassroots. It's, it's a way of reporting politics that we kind of know in the last two years has lent people to really misjudge uh, the political mood. An organized movement on the political right discredit mainstream journalism. I'll say more about that. Trust in the news media as an institution is lower than ever in living memory while popular anger reaches an all-time high. There's been this absolute collapse of trust in media. Uh, lack of diversity in newsrooms. People have been talking about that in the last week in Grenfell Tower and, and people saying actually the reporters going down to Grenfell Tower stand out because they're white and posh uh, and they're missing out a lot of the story to do with Muslims uh, and, and the communities down there because th there are just not enough diverse people inside newsrooms. Uh, we know that's a problem and that was a problem with Trump in America. 
Facebook slowly taking charge of the day-to-day -day relationship with users, users of the news system. So as Facebook becomes bigger and bigger, more and more powerful, they are the intermediaries to people. And newspapers are faced with this dilemma that they can't really afford not to be on Facebook because the audience is there. But Facebook have all the data on the readers. And the moment you put your, your content there, you've no idea who is reading it or how to. You can't advertise to them because that's Facebook's property, not your property. So Facebook is colonizing that space as a, a platform. There's another bit of green. The increasingly dim prospect that there will be a fact-based debate to which journalists can usefully contribute. And I'll talk a bit more about that. So that's, that's really, are, are people interested in facts? This, this premise that's drawn you all here tonight to talk about a world without news doesn't matter. Um, weak leadership and a thin institutional structure in the American press, which is not accustomed to organizing itself to fight back or act assertively in any coordinated way. And then finally, news and political debates subordinated to entertainment values by media companies obeying commercial imperatives while claiming a public service mantle. I probably don't need to talk about that, but, but you can see the, the, the business model that has built up, which didn't exist, but then there was this, if you like, parenthesis in which advertising became the thing that initially set the British press free from its, its political roots is, is now dying. Uh, but there has been an attempt to, to, to marry news and entertainment to try and build ever larger and larger audiences because that was the, 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 the business model. Now, why does any of this matter? Well, there was a, a, a very well-known debate in America in the 1920s between John Dewey and Walter Lippmann. Uh, and John Dewey came out and made the, really the classic case for the press and said, well, the, the press is, is important because you, they are the, the, the vital link between people and the people who govern them. Uh, and if you inform people well and the citizens become better informed, they will make better choices about who's going to be in charge and therefore you get a better democracy. Walter Lippmann comes along and says, nice idea, but it doesn't work, and it doesn't work for lots of reasons. It doesn't work because of the press. The press itself is an imperfect medium. It can't deal with the complexity that you have to have in order to make decisions in public life. Uh, its ownership structures are flawed. There are many things that actually stop that utopian vision of the press from happening. And therefore, uh, why don't we just appoint capable people to, to rule over us and don't bother too much about involving people. Now, I think if you're a, a journalist, you have to be with Dewey. You have to think that what you're doing is valuable because you are preparing people, informing people. Politicians sometimes have to make really hard decisions, and it's, it's even harder if, if, if people haven't been prepared in any way with good information. Um, so I, I sort of, you know, begin by, by starting on the side of Dewey and saying this is something that really matters. And I think of the, the foundations of my own newspaper, uh, the Manchester Guardian. That was the first issue in May the 5th, 1821. Um, it's also the day I think Napoleon died, but it was some time before the Guardian uh, got the news of that, about three months, because news travels slower. 
in those days. Uh, and nowadays, I mean, it was, a, it was like a sort of startup, The Guardian. Um, uh, and nowadays, a, a startup looks like that. Uh, you, you start something out, and your intention is to make a lot of money, and you cash out after about seven years, and, the, and, and you get your seed money, and you get your investors, and you build it up, and then you sell it. Well, The Guardian wasn't like that. Um, I don't think anyone thought they were ever going to make any money out of The Guardian, which is just as well, because no one ever did. Uh, and when I, when I joined The Guardian, the same man who'd started it, John Edward Taylor, there was still, he, he, he then got involved with the Scots, his, his nephew, C.P. Scott, then became editor for 57 years, record that's unlikely ever to be beaten. And Martin Scott was on the Scott Trust, still a Scott on the Scott Trust. So it was for 195 years, it's really been in the same family, a really exceptional thing. Uh, and it was founded as a piece of public service. Uh, John Edward Taylor was a Manchester businessman, uh, and it happened that one day, uh, a couple of years earlier, he had been to hear that man, Henry Hunt, speak in St. Peter's Square in Manchester. And Henry Hunt was a very dangerous man who believed in a lot of dangerous things, like equal laws and equal rights, and having the vote um, and the ballot, and not, people not working for longer than 10 hours, and, and enter child labor. You can, so you can see what a threat he was to the state with terrible views like that. Uh, and the state did indeed regard him as a menace. Uh, and on August the 16th, 1819, when he went to speak in St. Peter's Square, there was the Peterloo Massacre. And the state rode into the crowd to arrest him. And they, they, they had swords, and they just cut down the crowd uh, in order to get to the front and, uh, and cart him off. And John Edward Taylor witnessed that, and he thought, well, what's the most important thing that happens now? Uh, and after medical relief, it seemed to him the most important thing was that we had facts. And he kind of knew what the state was going to do. The state, there would be lies, because there are always lies. And, and people would lie about what had happened. And he thought that humanity could only exist, and progress could only happen if at least we established what the facts were. And the Times reporter, John Tyus, had, had um, taken sanctuary and couldn't write that thing. He couldn't write for his paper. So John Edward Taylor wrote it all down, put it on the train to London. And um, there, there, there were lists of, of the people who had been, uh, there, there were some facts, available facts. Uh, and he got it to the Times on the 18th of August. The Times carried his report. And the Times did magnificently over the next couple of days just publishing more and more and more as various accounts came in. And they did stuff that nowadays would be called aggregation, i.e. they took many other people's versions of the same event. Uh, they did crowdsourcing. People wrote, wrote lots of private letters to the Times to say, look, I was there. I saw this. This is what happened. Uh, and people who were in the crowd effectively behaved like citizen journalists. They said, well, we, we, we want to establish the facts too. Uh, and we're going to sign a, a petition to say what we saw, because it's important that the facts uh, come out. And there was this great raging debate for the next, for years and years and years afterwards. I mean, arguably for a century afterwards, historians were still arguing about what the facts were. And on the left, you had 
essentially the state parties arguing through the newspapers and through the courts. Uh, and on the right, you had witnesses, historians, journalists, uh, putting the other case of, of what happened. So I, I think back to the, 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 the origins of The Guardian and, and how it was based in just bearing witness, just being there, just writing it down, uh, and just saying what the facts were, because facts, a world without news, a world without facts, is a really dangerous place. And the, there are many dangerous places already uh, in the world um, that we live in. And of course, recent history shows that Peterloo was not a one-off. That was the uh, Hillsborough disaster. Uh, and that was the infamous edition of The Sun that offered the truth that was nothing like the truth. But it was essentially the same thing that the people in authority, something terrible happens and people start to tell lies about it. Uh, it happened, so it was 40 years, 30 years or more before the truth came out uh, on Hillsborough. The same thing happened in, in 1972 on, on Bloody Sunday. And again, the first story is that they didn't fire until they were fired upon. The third battalion fired three rounds altogether after they had, had something between 10 and 20 fired at them. Essentially the same story that the state put out after Peterloo and again, it was 40 years before the Prime Minister stood up in the House of Commons and, and apologized. While I was editing, there was the death of Ian Tomlinson at the, the G20 riots, not far from here. Um, not, not riots, there were, were protests, but, but this man on the right, who was a news seller, died. And the story was that he suffered a heart attack. Uh, and there were bottles lobbed at rescuers, just like at Peter Lou, supposedly. Um, uh, and we had a reporter who so doubted that that was true and, and did what reporters can now do, which is to say to people, well, were you there? Um, uh, just like in Peterloo, were you there? Did you see it? Did you take photographs? You couldn't do that in Peterloo. Uh, and in the crowd, this was almost before it was common to have millions of mobile phones, but nevertheless, there was a, a man in New York, a banker who looked through his camera and found he had captured the moment where a, a policeman had hit Ian Tomlinson from behind uh, and knocked him to the ground uh, and he had died. So again, I, I saw this connection when I was editing of, of this, the value of just having reporters who were skeptical, uh, who could now directly speak to the crowd uh, and who could just write the facts uh, and the importance of doing that and, and the chaos in society that would follow if you didn't know what the facts were, because then anybody could tell any story about anything. And what you had really was, was a sort of three-cornered debate between, I'm using the word state, but let, let's say authorities on, at the top left. There's the Times and John Edward Taylor on the right, so the, the press there and the people there. Um, and you could say, you could interlay now ab above that and say, well, those three spheres are still there. The media is still there, the public is still there, and the state is still there. But I think the crucial thing that's changed is the balance of power between these institutions now. So there's the state. There's one incarnation of the state. Uh, and notoriously, he can now speak 
daily to 32 million people directly. It doesn't need to go through a newspaper. He can just speak directly and, and tell whatever version of his truth that he wants to tell. Times is still there, and the Times' business model is to put up very hard paywall around its content, uh, and I think their daily audience is about 1.1 million. People now speak through Facebook, and every day on Facebook, there are 1.2 billion active users. So the numbers and the power and the shape of communication has altered dramatically, even those, those three bits of the puzzle uh, are still there. And that makes me think, I, this, this thought keeps coming to my head of, I began by describing what essentially was a vertical world. We had the information you didn't, we almost literally handed it down to you. And that was how many institutions and how much, much institutional power worked. And we now have a horizontal world. Um, and as I said, we can't see this horizontal world very carefully, but I think maybe with every passing month, we sense that this horizontal world is working in ways that we don't yet understand and that the respect for the sort of vertical world is changing very rapidly. And of course, that affects deeply what we're talking about tonight and news and who gets to tell it and who gets to believe it uh, and who gets to pay for it and so on and so forth. Now we have things called alternative facts. So in this world in which the president can speak directly to people, and doesn't seem to care very much whether what he says is true or not. Uh, and when his people challenge him, he comes out and says, well, that wasn't a fact, that was an alternative fact. Uh, and suddenly this phrase, fake news, has uh, appeared in recent months. Uh, and we learned after the election of President Trump that there were teenagers in the Balkans who could make quite a nice living from creating fake news, but that was just one kind of fake news. That was fake news, you might call it disinformation, which was to make money, which was the, uh, what the, 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 the teenagers were doing. There was misinformation, well, arguably, we've always had that. Uh, and then the stuff, which we might just call rubbish, which is to uh, uh, amuse or divert. But I guess we'll have a role in deciding uh, if we're on social media, whether we're quite rigorous enough in checking stuff before we become complicit in uh, spreading uh, news. But fake news has become a considerable thing. I, I, I went to speak in a school recently and I, I just made up, I, I didn't make up, that's the wrong word. I created a, 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 a piece of paper in which I put lots of stories about Trump and then gave it out to Bright Six Hormers and said, can you tell what? Uh, unites those stories, and it took about three or four minutes of staring at those stories before one teenager said, are these stories untrue? Absolutely right, every story is untrue. And you say to these teenagers, well, where do you get your news from? And they say, Facebook. And you say, great, where, where, where did it come from before Facebook? And they look at you puzzled, and they don't understand the question. And you say, well, Facebook doesn't have any reporters, so, so Facebook is a platform for stories that have been created elsewhere. Do you, do you get that? Uh, and some of them do, some of them don't. 
So you've got a huge problem, it seems to me, in, in which this, this overwhelming platform now is carrying material that may or may not be true, and smart 17 and 18 year olds are not really equipped, some of them, to really be skeptical enough or to question um, sources and where the sources come from. And they're not helped by the President of the United States, who is tweeting daily, trying to discredit what he calls fake news. So you've got the President of the United States, for some bizarre reason, has decided to take on probably the most respected paper in the world, the New York Times. You're going to say that any story, any newspaper has really, really high editorial standards and can be believed. It's the New York Times. And the most powerful man in the world has made it a kind of sort of campaign to discredit the New York Times and saying, no, no, don't read the New York Times, it's fake. And then he broadcasts his alternative facts over there. And you think, what is going on here? Why, why is he doing this? Why, why would you want to create this sort of chaos of information where people don't know what is true? And he's saying it really doesn't matter whether it's true. You, maybe you should believe me because you can't believe them. Uh, and how damaging and dangerous this is in any country. But for that to be happening today in the United States of America, which was the cradle of the First Amendment and, had, and, and took news and the importance of news so seriously, it seems to me a really dangerous moment. And the thing is that the, the, the temptation is to say, well, let's go back to that, that old world, that old world when I could hand you down the news. That was a nice world. Maybe we could just go back to that. And, you know, it'd be so nice if people once again queued outside newspaper offices waiting for them to open uh, in order to get their newspaper and hand over their money because that was the reliable source of news that we would all like. Um, and of course, you know, part of me, yeah, I mean, I've worked all my life as a journalist. And, uh, yeah. um, uh, it would be lovely, wouldn't it? But it's not, it's not gonna happen. And it's not gonna happen because you don't look like this anymore. Um, you know, that, that was sort of metaphorically, you, the audience looked like that, like you're looking tonight. And um, uh, I'm not going to labor the point about the sort of passivity of the role that you had as readers. Um, but that's not what the world looks like now. And I was very interested when I was editing, there were two or three rule breakers who came along. Interestingly, quite often not trained as journalists, who realized that this, this distinction between the journalists and the audience was changing. Um, I'm going to talk about three of them. So one of them was that man who, who was a, a Dutch anthropologist called Joris Leyenduk. Uh, and he ended up somehow in the Middle East being a war correspondent. Uh, and he then came back and wrote a not a very flattering book about war correspondence. Uh, and he goes to his editor and says, I don't know what we're going to do next. Um, but I, I think I would like to write a column about the electric car because if, if all the Indians and all the Chinese start buying petrol cars, I think the planet's in real trouble. So his editor agrees to that. He gives him a year to write about the electric car. 
and Eurus writes his first column and, and says what I've just said to you and then ends, but I don't know anything about this subject. Uh, and it was kind of an inversion of the journalistic model because any journalist in the room will know your job as a journalist is you go to Google and you Google electric car <laughs> because the business model is I know a bit more than you and I can sell you my knowledge. And Eurus inverted that and says, well, I'm, I'm just a journalist, but my, among my readers, there will be people who know what you're talking about. And, you know, so what, what should the next column be about? And the readers, after a moment of sort of picking their jaws up that here was a journalist being honest, uh, said, well, you know, you've got to start with the battery. The battery is the issue. Okay. Um, what's the issue with the battery? And so began this thing in which Joris and his readers sort of co-wrote this column and he had wonderful fun doing it and he created prizes and the readers came up with the funding of the prizes and I think it was an exercise in huge trust building. Here, here, here were people who, who, who didn't want to sit there any longer listening to journalists and probably didn't trust them as much as they used to because now they had access to the same sources that many of the journalists were using uh, and this was a more honest process of communicating. And I met Joris and I was charmed by that story and I said, is there anything else, Joris, that you know nothing about? And he said, well, I, I have no idea. I know nothing about banking, but I think it's quite interesting. So I said, you're hired. And I gave him a column and he wrote a column about banking and said, I know nothing about banking. And all these bankers who had had buckets of brown stuff tipped over them for years because this was just after the financial crash came out and rang him up and it was like therapy for them and they, they all told about their marriages and their cocaine habits and uh, what it was like being a derivative trader and he, he wrote fabulous stuff about banking that no one had ever written before. So he was one rule breaker. Second one, Glenn Greenwald. So um, Glenn uh, blogged about national security. Uh, that's his newsroom. He, um, he works from his kitchen table in Rio de Janeiro with 13 rescue dogs. Uh, and he had trained as a lawyer. And nobody had told him about journalism. And the, the basic thing about journalism is you go in the morning, you write your story, you press send, and then you go to the pub. You know, that's, that's obvious. Um, and he thought, well, surely the moment you press the button is the most interesting moment because that's when people start reading it. And I'd be quite interested in what my readers think. He wasn't just throwing the newspaper over the wall at them. So he would make himself a cup of tea and then he would sit down and for the next few hours, he would talk to them. Uh, and they would say, you know, great story, Glenn, but um, by the way, there's a mistake in the second paragraph and the fourth paragraph's not quite right. And fifth paragraph, I think you could add this and there's an interesting link you could put in the seventh paragraph. So the story got better during the course of the evening through the, through the participation of people who wanted the story to be as good as possible. Quite unlike British journalism, I have to say. Most British journalists don't want to know if they've made a mistake. Uh, and if you try complaining to some newspapers and saying that's wrong, you're going to be met with an absolute barrage of we don't want to know if it's wrong. Um, so, so this was, again, a complete inversion of the model that most journalists work by. And by the time we hired him, uh, he had, the slide missing there, he had um, 750,000 followers on Twitter. So he had a personal community of three quarters of a million who came across with him. Uh, and 
again, he sort of worked on the assumption that my readers will know quite a lot more about this. Some of my readers will know more about this, and I, I'm here to do the sort of information exchange. Uh, and whatever you think of Edward Snowden, one of his readers was Edward Snowden, who knew more than he knew about national security, and that man ended up with a Pulitzer Prize. And this guy got the Pulitzer Prize too, uh, Washington Post reporter David Fahrenholt. Uh, and he started on the Trump trail of, of working out Trump and his finances and his charities. And um, eventually he just thought, I, you know, I'm just on my own. The newspaper business is not as rich as it used to be. The, the Washington Post newsroom before Jeff Bezos bought it looked like that first slide, but they'd lost lots and lots of people over the time. So he did what our guy did with the G20 riots. Uh, and he just posted all his notebooks online and said, look, I'm trying to find out where Trump's money has gone to the charities. Any, anyone want to help me? And the readers piled in and said, sure, we will help you. Uh, you're, this is a public service. It's important that the world has this information. Uh, and he managed to work out that there were serious irregularities in, in Trump's charities. Uh, he did it with the readers, and again, he won the Pulitzer Prize. So these were just people who were saying, well, actually, th this vertical world has gone, but the horizontal world that's replacing it is rather exciting. If we can harness people and use their expertise and find a different way of talking to them and make them trust us more because we're showing them our workings and we're being transparent about things, and, uh, then Maybe that's a, a way forward. Uh, maybe that's reading uh, the, the mood of our times better. That's the slide that shows that Glenn Greenwald has 730,000 followers. Bart Gelman, also a great reporter, works with the Washington Post. I think he's now got three Pulitzer Prizes, 26,000 followers. Um, uh, and, and Twitter followers are not everything, but, but I think it sort of shows you something uh, uh, about the way that this world works. So, um, now of course, the traditional journalist doesn't like this um, because they want to go back to the, the world in which we were on the platform uh, and we had, we had the expertise, remember, we had the authority and this is rather challenging of, of what we think. Uh, and so we started getting all these books about post-truth and how readers not interested in the truth and we live in a post-fact age. Uh, and um, really, we've tried that business. A lot of newspapers started turning off the comments on our articles. I understand why. Sometimes they're not very nice places. But it was essentially saying, we've tried that stuff and our readers are idiots. Uh, and we'd like to get back to that vertical world because that felt more comfortable. Um, and newspapers kept on being surprised, which is a bad look for a newspaper. It's a bad look to be stumbling around saying, I just don't understand it, what happened? Um, because the only reason you would pay a newspaper is to get that right and to understand. There's no, there's no point in handing over your money to a newspaper that says, I'm sorry, we're constantly being surprised by the world. Um, uh, I know we should do better, um, but, but um, uh, we're the last people that know anything. Uh, uh, and yet, in a sense, they were becoming the last people that knew everything, anything because they couldn't see into this horizontal world uh, of what was happening. And in a sense, uh, you just wonder if, if people, I mean, it's possible that people are ill-informed and, and, and stupid. That, that's 
you know, we shouldn't discount that. Uh, it's possible that, that they're a bit ahead of us uh, and that they are telling us stuff about how they experience the world. <clears throat> Even if they come out with the wrong answers, we may think, or some of us may think, about some issues. But if a clever man like Thomas Piketty puts it in a big hardback book, he will get very favorable reviews. But if people say it in a different kind of way, then they're dismissed as stupid. And you get this sort of world in which some people see it as a division between the club and the mob. I remember a Guardian columnist, probably should remain nameless, saying, you know, I get all that stuff you're doing, but actually they're the mob, I'm the club, and I know which side I'm on. I, I prefer the club uh, to the mob, and I don't think the mob have got anything to teach us. And yet the club is being made to look a bit silly. If you look at the current private eye, what will happen next by somebody who got it all wrong last time? <laughs> Make no mistake, this is a seismic shift in British politics, which I, for one, saw coming but didn't think I'd mention. <laughs> and then there are two pages of apologies of, uh, of people saying, I'm terribly sorry I said all that stuff about Jeremy Corbyn when I said he was a complete Marxist idiot. I meant to say that he was a towering figure of Labour politics. <laughs> when I said Theresa May was banned to win and that she was completely right to hold this election, I meant to say she's a complete idiot and she's not fit for power. And again, this is a bad look for journalists. So if you're sitting in the club thinking, I kind of know what's going on, and it's my job to tell people what's going on. And you keep on being surprised that the world then doesn't go according to how you see it. You look bad. And that leads to terrible levels of trust in the British press. The British press is the worst in the whole of Europe in terms of, of how it's regarded. But even on the upmarket papers, 60% 60 people, 60 of people don't trust them at all. On the mid-market papers, 84% of people don't trust them much or not at all. And the red tops, 89% of them don't trust them. And there's a, you, know, you don't have to be a genius to work out that that's in inverse proportion to the circulation. So most people buy the papers they don't trust. <laughs> Which takes you back to Lippmann and Dewey. So why are people buying newspapers? And do they have, you know, have we managed to convince them that Facts matter, that we can't live without facts. And yet they go and they buy the papers where they don't trust the facts. So if you're, if you're now feeling beleaguered, you're in the club, and people are not paying attention to you anymore, and you, you, you're increasingly bewildered by the model world, then it's very tempting to lash out at these West Coast companies uh, and, uh, and complain that they are, they are the problem. And you've now got a division between the sort of Mark Zuckerberg view of Facebook, which is going to be a global community, it's going to be supportive, safe, informed, civically engaged and inclusive. He wrote a big manifesto recently. And then you've got Paul Dacre on the right, and the Daily Mail writes about this fairly regularly, and it usually has this paragraph that says, the people are deeply tarnished, filth-peddling, tax-dodging, pusillanimous, terror-abetting, internet behemoth, sinking lower into the mire, full of hatred, targeting the vulnerable with bile. So you may guess they don't like them very much. <laughs> and really, they would like to close them down, because that's you. And you're all talking to each other. And it's out of control, frankly. 
um, and we want to go back to that old model because we like that old model. And in writing this book, I find it's, it's a difficult book to write because I sort of feel, I, you know, if there's going to be an argument, I suppose I should be on, on this side of the argument because these are hacks. I've spent my life with these people. That's the press. Uh, and I know that we have different kinds of press, but nevertheless, I should be on this side. But then I, I, I sort of don't believe that, that Facebook is, is as bad as all that, you know, because Facebook is nothing but people. It's just composed of, of what you lot are saying to each other and your children and, and your friends and your relatives. So I find myself now being confused, and I think, well, Surely there's something that I can write about which is called journalism, which is about reliable information and is about the truth, and we can all get behind that. And then I look at the run-up to Brexit, and I think, hmm, was that the truth? Uh, was that the only truth? Did I have to be told 165 times what to think about migrants uh, and and I wouldn't be trusted with any other version of the truth. And I think that's not a kind of journalism I really believe. Do I think judges are the enemies of the people? No, I don't really. <laughs> um, I think that case was a rather complicated case in which actually the judges were arguably standing up for parliamentary sovereignty, which I, was Brexit was all about that, wasn't it? It was parliamentary sovereignty. And so a page like that makes me think, hmm, that's a, the that's a sort of journalism I don't know that I back. There was an extraordinary issue of the Daily Mail. I don't know if anybody in the audience knows this man, David Bell. He was um, foreign editor of the Financial Times. He's a church warden. He's very active in, very actively engaged man in, in civic life and sits on lots of bodies, really decent, good man, you can probably see. The Daily Mail did 13 pages, 13 pages, devoted to trying to show that he was a really evil man with dark arts, the old boy network, the sleazy world of David Bell. And it was because David Bell was sitting on the Leveson committee that was looking into the behavior of the British press. So I look at that and I think, no, I don't believe that. I just don't believe that. And then, more recently, you look at the coverage of that now they're all apologizing for and saying, we, sorry, we didn't mean that, <laughs> and seem to have no effect. So for the first time, you had this form of journalism in which people were saying, no, nah, actually, um, with that, that sort of, again, 13 pages trying to prove that Corbyn was this terrible man uh, who did terrible things with the IRA, and, and people sort of don't, don't buy it necessarily. Um, and then you get into thinking about, well, what's the truth about Facebook? You know, it's, is it a filth-peddling behemoth, or is it this inclusive uh, uh, community? And, of course, the truth is there are many views about Facebook. That's why it's such an interesting... There's never been a company like it. It's, it's the most interesting thing that's happened since Gutenberg up there. Um, if you're a... Uh, the other people in the press... You hate Facebook because they're eating our lunch. We've talked about that. We, we don't like them because they're taking something like 60, 70% of all the digital advertising that's coming into press. So they're, they're, they're threatening to destroy the press, and they say it's just unfair. And 
you might have some sympathy with the monopolistic grounds of that. Facebook then come back and say, well, we're not really a publisher. Uh, you can't, you know, we're more like the post office. You can't expect that we're going to steam open every letter that we post. Uh, it's wrong to see us as a publisher. We're a, new, we're a different kind of company. If you're number 10 or the state, you don't like Facebook very much because it has dark spaces in it and you want to end encryption and you want a backdoor key, you want visibility into it. If you're a dissident, sorry, if you're a Chinese leader, you also want to end encryption. But that's a sort of different kind of thing because you think, well, if we end encryption for her, we're going to end encryption for him. And that's problematic because if you're a dissident in a country far away, you badly want encryption. You want those safe spaces. Uh, if you're an ordinary user of Facebook, you probably think Facebook's quite good. It, it's, it's given you power in your life and the ability to communicate that no one's ever had before. If you're a parent, you might think that, but you might be a bit worried and you might be slightly more on the side of regulation if you are an American and you're an American libertarian and you live on the West Coast, this is a huge issue of, of um, First Amendment and free speech. And so a more balanced presentation of that would not just say these are filth-peddling liars. You'd say this is a complicated issue, a bit like Brexit. You know, there are pluses and minuses. Don't just tell me 165 times which to vote. This is a pretty risky thing. I'd like to have the pluses and minuses explain to me and perhaps leave me to make my mind up. Uh, and you might say, well, there are, there are many positive things about Facebook, and we might agree it would be nice if they paid tax, uh, or uh, uh, if we knew a bit more about these algorithms that could influence elections. So there's a good debate to be had about Facebook, but actually the British press doesn't help me understand it. So there's, you know, there's this thing in which people are saying, let's kill Facebook, then we can get back to the old world. They, they can't even talk about that sensibly. Um, and and the debate about Facebook and, and whether you regulate it or whether you try and find norms of behavior that would govern it is a really complicated discussion. And if the press is essentially saying, actually, we're not for complexity, um, then I think they've lost the Dewey bit. And the world without news argument is going to be a really problematic one for the press to make. Um, so that's it. That's, that's the, this, this is. The, the, the moment we've reached out, it feels to me a, a very critical moment for societies. And there are societies where you feel we've begun to lo lose that. We've lost it in Turkey. We've lost it in Russia. Uh, we've lost it in, in too many countries. We're losing it in Kenya at the moment. Uh, and I, I just wonder if we're alive to the danger. Uh, and the thing that makes me even more worried is at the very moment of danger, I'm not sure there's a robust and sophisticated enough debate about what journalism should be so that in order to make the case and say, come on, wake up, uh, that journalism will be there and, and rise to the demands that are being made of it. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.